0: Hi there, I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Big Think was started back in 2008 and at the time it was calling itself a YouTube for Intellectuals. The idea was to gather some of the smartest, uh, most creative ideas from leading thinkers in every field and create a kind of online encyclopedia of emerging contemporary wisdom. And that's exactly what they did. Since then, Big Think has released over 10,000 short form video ideas And last year, with the buzz that was happening around podcasting, the quote-unquote golden age of podcasting, we thought we'd like to enter this space, uh, but we'd like to find a different voice for Big Think in this space. We wanted to resurface some of these older videos, but encounter them and interrogate them in a new way. And that's how the idea for Think Again, a Big Think podcast was born. The idea is that our video producers who know the archives really well go in and choose three clips that are a total surprise to me and to my guests and that are designed to spark interesting conversations. And over the course of the past year, we've had 56 episodes and many, many interesting, surprising, unexpected moments have happened. It's been an incredible journey for me personally. And I think it's a good time for us to look back at where we started and where we've ended up thus far. And so we're bringing you two weeks of mixtapes of our greatest hits thus far, and this is week number two. Henry Rollins was the lead singer of the punk band Black Flag. He's a spoken word artist, he's an actor, He's an artistic force uh, and an autodidact and a fascinating individual all around. He's got a radio show out in L.A. On this episode, which was one of our earliest, which I taped remotely, which I hadn't done before. So I was talking to him on the phone and taping at the same time, which was nerve wracking, but went really well. We were talking about the relationship between the police and the citizenry and civilians. And it has become ever more relevant now. This was in response to a clip by psychologist Paul Ekman who specifically looks at emotional response under stress.
1: The police are there to protect us. They're there for our safety. Now, occasionally, there will be a bad apple, uh, but my work with police has suggested that that's a really exceptional problem is they have a gun, so they can do a lot of harm quickly. Well, if a policeman is in that state, and they're not any different than the rest of us in that regard, it's a lot more dangerous. So it's a dangerous job that requires that you're in a calm state of mind when you go out to perform it. And we have the means to both assess that and further that, but just not deploying it. My biggest dream, and I haven't yet been able to convince any police department to try this, is to see whether we couldn't have a really fast, easy, technological assessment. So before someone goes out on the beat, they sit down, and their heart rate, blood pressure, skin conductance is monitored, five or 10 seconds, says, yes, you're in your normal state, go ahead and good luck. All human beings have bad days. We need a way to be able to specify, this policeman's having a bad day today. Let's see what we can do with a few minutes of a few exercises to bring him into a calmer state so he can go out and do his job in a way he won't regret.
2: I couldn't agree more with what that man said. After all, they are people. They will have bad days. When you put a cop's uniform on, no one might know your name, but they all have an idea of you and you are walking around in a huge target. So what if the the guy who's off his meds or he's somehow extremely angry or whatever, he looks at you and you remind him of that cop who did him wrong all those years ago. And sadly, today, it's you. I think both the citizenry and law enforcement, everyone needs to get some information on how the other one is living, thinking, feeling. It's a delicate relationship. Because when a citizen gets shot, unless it's completely obvious, it goes into a gray area and it taps into every slight that that person or that demographic or that ethnicity or neighborhood or county has suffered. And so America is in this unenviable position of never, in my just my opinion, we never did all the heavy lifting required to live up to the expectations that we put on ourselves of the Constitution, of our very awesome legal system, and the genius, and I'll use that word, the genius institution of democracy. And we often fall short. I think those are high marks to to clear anyway, but you have a society now that is becoming more and more polarized since at least Reagan, or more recently, uh, George W. Bush too, And you have a black president. And I think some of this has to do with that. And I remember I was suckered into doing one of these awful MTV poetry events where I stood around with a bunch of the the most pretentious people I've ever been in a building with in my To this day, I, I bite through an iron rod. I'm so mad. And I said at one point before I read something, I said, maybe policemen should be poets. Maybe they should be philosophers. Maybe they should be regarded as people with a real keen insight into the human state, which no doubt they be like them and every bartender becomes that whether they want to or not. And then this poet guy went on after that and went, Yeah, yeah, maybe we should do police poems or whatever. Like, really, man? Too many witnesses. I, I'd kick your ass right now because I think I was right about that. And I don't know about you, but I've hung out with and met a lot of cops, a lot of detectives. And I've heard stories that will peel the paint off your car, like kids in frying pans, like just things no one should see. Right. And how do you expect that person yeah. to say, hey, I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt? They're traumatized for a living. I mean, if they're... Well, it's PTSD but that's their job in that there's no recovery from them. Like a a person who comes back from Iraq or Afghanistan after multiple rotations, they're done. In putting them in that position, we're asking
0: them to think flexibly, creatively, responsively in the moment, and at the same time, putting them through a kind of trauma that maybe makes
2: it impossible for any human being to do that. Right, so here's an idea. What if you put term limits on a street officer, on a, a quote beat cop, whatever and whatever that term is, you know, 10 minutes, 10 years, well, you make it, you know, let the let the doctors decide. And after that time, you have some options. You can go to detective school and become a guy in a suit and a tie who talks to the officers who secure the scene, or you can go and take further training and become a criminal psychologist. You can go up the food chain of academia and teach class. You can become an instructor. Weapons, strategy, whatever. But your time as a gumshoe or in the squad car, that's limited. Because the let's all agree that the human psyche can take so much and then it goes pow. And it's, it's not good for that person's family. It's not good for them. They should not have a horrifying life that leads them to alcoholism, domestic abuse, shooting someone because they're in a bad mood. Let's all agree that cops have a job that most of us statistically do not want. Oh, it's, it's incredible what humans do to each other. And in America, you know, we are a place flooded with guns. And I think that idea of like, well, we need better background checks, that genie's never voluntarily going back into the bottle. And I was writing in my journal last night, thinking about this whole awfulness in, that South, in Carolina, South Carolina. Yeah. I said, you could take half of the guns off of the citizens of America, just have them go poof, just have half of them go away. If a guy like Dylan uh, Roof wants to get a gun, even after doing all of that, that guy would not have that hard a problem getting a gun within 24 hours. There's that many guns in America. And so there's no law you're going to pass that's going to make everything better. You have to change how we view each other How we view our differences, our commonalities, the law. It has to be from the ground up. It's going to take generations and a lot of heavy lifting, a lot of patience and a lot of money. Everyone is either looking at they're living quarter by quarter, election by election. No one is looking at the long term really far down the road unless they're making a campaign speech and then they're all about the future. A
0: cynical person would say that that system is pretty well entrenched. I I don't know how you undo that. Undo elections. Maybe when you get sick enough of people walking into churches and just blowing away innocent people. Maybe when we collectively are sick enough of that because it's happening often enough.
2: Right. You know, as far as you know, America's going to the dogs or whatever, you know, no slur upon dogs, but you know America's going down the drain. No, America's headed towards the drain. America, America's hit bottom. Oh, no, 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 no. We're nowhere near the bottom. We have so much money and so many resources. The bottom. Oh, we're falling towards it like a person jumping out of a plane without a parachute. We're heading there. But when we hit, you'll know because it's going to be like science fiction. It's going to be like one of those movies you see on the weekend. Yeah. yeah. It's going to be like Blade Runner on growth hormones and when that happens maybe some of us will be slapped awake and go oh this can't happen tomorrow it can't happen again and we have to change but until then i don't think we've seen the rated g version yet we had a moment in 1865 with the ratification of the 13th amendment uh, abolishing slavery and we we could have followed up in 1868 with the 14th amendment and said okay slavery's wrong And I see you guys over there, stop doing that Jim Crow thing you're about to enact because we really need to get this whole equality train on the tracks. But we never did it. We never did it. We nodded towards it for elections. We made steps towards it, Civil Rights Movement, the Civil Rights Act of 1875, the Civil Rights Act of 1964, but the promised land that Martin Luther King spoke of and all these amazing people have been trying to head towards. You might be cool, I might be cool, but we are sick. We got problems. And so I've given up on we, because I don't think we are gonna get better. Um, We are Dylan Roof. And so I think it's gonna take something that's so overwhelmingly huge. I don't think it's going to be the angry people occupying Wall Street. They just got pepper sprayed. They eventually went home because it got too cold. I don't think you're going to coordinate enough do-gooders to walk upon the White House without four Bradley fighting vehicles coming out and five people getting shot dead. And then someone saying, do we have an understanding? That's right, you're going home. But, but dig it. I, I know you know this, I'm just going to remind you. We are the ones with that power. You and me, we have that power. Unfortunately, that we is now a bought commodity. Bought, votes are bought. People are coerced districts are gerrymandered, more Democrats than Republicans vote, yet you have a bicameral house that does not reflect that. And you get what you vote for. I mean, here we are. And any woe or ill in America, I take full responsibility. Like, if there's any politician you don't like, that was us. That's kind of on you. I mean, you you might have voted against that person and lost. Okay, fair enough. But he's our problem. And you can't say, that's not my problem. Pal, you live here. It is your problem.
0: Not so long ago, I had the great pleasure of sitting down with actress and author, Mary Louise Parker and it was a wonderful conversation. And there was actually a whole preamble that didn't get recorded, unfortunately, about poetry, where she recommended about five modern poets to me who I've read since and who are all incredible. But in this section, we're responding to a video clip of Ralph Rivera, who is director of digital for the British Broadcasting Company. And he's making a claim about virtual reality He's suggesting that it's going to inspire empathy in people. And Mary Louise Parker took pretty strong exception to that. This was a a memorable
3: moment. The first wave of digital is going by where people have essentially been focused on digitizing what they already had. So you have newspapers online and radio online and TV online. And a lot of people first thought, well, that's it. And now they realize that's just the first part. So that's a significant shift that's occurring right now. Some of the immersive video, 360 video experience that we've done have been of uh, Syrian refugee camps so that you get more of a visceral feeling for what that feels like what it looks like by being able and by the way it's not just the video the sound being able to get 360 sounds so that when you turn your head you you hear things in a in a different way so that experience has to come together and that is much richer, has much more information packed in it, which gives you more context for the story.
0: Yeah. So I think, yeah, let's start there. You, you are making skeptical sounds. <laughs> <laughs> I found that fairly terrifying um, for a number of reasons. One, I feel
4: like, the supposition that that people that we'll be able to galvanize people towards helping Syrian refugees by giving them the the experience the the Disney experience yeah. and I love Disney <laughs> of being in a in a refugee camp is somewhat absurd and a little bit vulgar because implicit in that is that you'll know what it's like to be in a refugee camp. Right. And I bristle at that and also the idea that you know during the Second World War there weren't the kind of anecdotal and stock references and images of war that we have now to the point where war war is, it's normal, you can see footage in a taxi cab of shots of a war movie and and nobody really has so much of a reaction, but I don't know that that makes people necessarily I don't know that that's creating some crazy anti-war movement. I don't know that that's creating right. an awareness or even fostering the awareness that this country has been at war forever. Right. And at times when one war was declared over, there are still people dying. And I think that there is a complete disconnect in this Country in and in life in general partly because of so much technology And I think when things are left to the imagination during the second world war it's, they didn't have any of that and everyone was moved to go and right. you know Volunteer and donate and women weren't wearing Pantyhose because you know there <laughs> right. weren't you didn't do anything that was against the war movement Everyone was our troops fighting right. for our troops right, and right. the disconnect began I think with the Korean War and the you know n- naming it a, a conflict rather than a war and it's like oh so there are different kinds of war yeah. you know I, I think I, I mean I in guess, World War
0: II at least the enemy was fairly clear cut like yes. that was a relatively easy story to tell yes. you know there were yes. bad guys <laughs> for sure a hundred percent
4: a hundred percent but I still think <laughs> the fact that people are dying soldiers are dying our neighbors friends family whatever are dying in completely horrific and ruinous conditions yeah and there's no there's a complete disconnect from that and if that's true that the you know putting on the glasses and making you feel like you know, you're going into the refugee land center of Disneyland. <laughs> right, right, right. I feel like if that's true, I want to see the result of that. And if that's true, I'll go work for him tomorrow. Like if he, if that's gonna get everybody, make them understand it, or is it gonna be? You can't tell me people aren't gonna put those glasses on and go cool. You know, like that. There, I just don't. Yeah, 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 I just yeah. don't. I don't know that that's going I, to move people who weren't already so inclined to to wanna help, I think in some ways that takes it even further out of reality by placing it into some kind of nether reality that we haven't even we don't even have any sort of language for and we, we haven't we don't have any research on how that affects people. Does that yeah. even come into the prefrontal cortex? Is that something that like stimulates your amygdala in the exact same way as like hearing a story secondhand about someone's brother? Right. I don't know. I mean,
0: I think, I, first of all, yeah, I think there's a lot to study there and a lot that we don't know. I also agree that technology creates distance. I feel like the engine of that is economics. I think it's because the technologies are primarily owned by massive media companies that are trying to entertain people and make a lot of bucks. So the impulse behind even the creation of news at this point, which is a 24-hour monster that needs to be fed with content, you know, the impulse behind that is an economic... Like, it's, it's, it's like, what's going to entertain the people? What's going to shock them? What's going to... You know, rather than some sort of benevolent, Humanistic impulse to try to make everybody care about refugees. You know?
4: Yeah, I I like what you said also about the news too. The other night I was I was not feeling well and I woke up at like three and I was like maybe I'll watch TV, which is not something I do in the middle of the night. But I just really wasn't feeling well. And I'm also someone who actively avoids the news. I do not have it on in my home. I have quite detailed and thorough (laughs) (laughs) reasoning for that i do not have the news on in my house Mm -hmm. and for for whatever reason i put it on and i went in the other room and i came back and i was like oh there's a national disaster there's something i came back the the guy is the newscaster is talking and i see ticker tape on the bottom and i'm trying frantically trying to read it because he's he's speaking with such emphasis and such urgency I thought there's been a, a bomb there's something's happened in Midtown I you know I'm I'm losing a little bit longer he's talking like about about a parking situation like it's a, and I realized oh no this is the news this is why I don't watch this like he had me so convinced that something really intense was yeah happening and it's like no it's Fox
0: I mean that's the thing like I I feel like look I mean great movies have affected the way that you think about things, right, in your life? I mean, there must have been a great movie that had some powerful impact on your sense of people or or the world. Yeah, Yeah. somewhat. No, yeah. Um, I mean, I just, I think that stories can impact us if they're told well and if they're told right. I'm skeptical about technology, not so much because I think technology is inherently always distancing, but because I don't think that people use it for the right re- you know, uh-huh. I don't think they're telling the stories in order to change the world for the better, for the most part.
4: I think just the presumption that bringing you further into the experience is going to give you greater empathy for it right. is not sound uh-huh. to me. Uh-huh. I think it might be actually be the opposite
0: that's interesting uh, because it's basically leaving saying, it up to the imagination. This is what it's, it's like
4: to be a refugee and it's like no you can't really get that by putting on glasses I'm yeah. sorry yeah. You, you you can get a camp I mean but if it takes that to rally your sense of humanity and your sense of generosity then I mean if you Maybe need it's glasses too late for, for that, you. <laughs> I don't know <laughs> you know gotcha. I kind of have to question that also
0: Another great conversation this past year was with critic A.O. Scott, who I found to be a a delightful, I mean, as you would expect, I guess, although he can be pretty intensely critical. He was a delightful and open-minded and curious thinker. In, In this case, we were responding to a clip by MIT's Sherry Turkle, who thinks about the ethics of the internet and society. And it got A.O. Scott and me talking about our cell phones and our lives within them.
5: Solitude is a big part of my story about reclaiming conversation. And some people say, well, why is that? I mean, solitude, conversation. Reclaiming conversation begins in solitude, and here's why. That you need to be able to gather yourself to yourself and have a capacity for solitude before you can turn to someone else and really hear what they have to say if you don't have a capacity for solitude you turn to someone else and you're projecting onto them who you need them to be for you and you can't hear who they really are and instinctively we shun people like that and you know technically they're narcissistic personalities but we don't need to know their technical name we just we just know we're uncomfortable about them because they're not giving us a chance to be us.
0: This is reminding me of my dinner with Andre. (laughs) There's this part where the director Andre Gregory is telling Wallace Shawn how he's been meditating and he goes, he sits in silence for long periods of time and Wallace Shawn is like, that sounds awful, I can't, I don't know, I would go crazy, ah, you know. I mean obviously they didn't have uh, smartphones back then but similar anxiety at, at dealing with solitude. I really like her idea and I
6: really agree with it about the relationship between solitude and conversation, that we can only really be with people in a sustaining or fulfilling way if we know how to be alone. And, and it's interesting to ask what other experiences count or don't count as solitude. I mean, I find, you know, watching a movie is a form of solitary reverie. And I mean Roger Ebert had a whole kind of theory about the difference between watching film and watching video that movies were like a dream state of reverie partly because of the motion of motion pictures is an illusion that there are these, right. these instances of darkness your eye and your mind have to work to complete them and to connect them okay. through through the persistence of vision and this was was a kind of generative state of semi-dreaming consciousness. And, right. and so, uh, like the productive solitude that she's talking about, whereas the video image without those breaks, without making your mind do that, kind of would narcotize and hypnotize you in a way. It's weird though, because like the, the, I'm on my phone all the time, you know. <laughs> I was I'm, gonna ask you like I, what I, your relationship am, is. And with. and I'm your like, speaker. I might, and I'm on my phone, like I go for long walks, you know, my way of, you know, when I need to clear my mind to write, but now I have this new phone that, like, with the little sort of Fitbit-type app on okay. it. So, like, we were talking about data and quantification. But, like, I'm always looking at how many steps I took. It's just <laughs> terrible. It's like, I, I, a few times a day, I'll click on that little heart icon. and I'll be like, oh, wow, 6,000. That's pretty good. I'm always aiming for 10,000 10, because I'm, you know, I'm trying to keep healthy and fit for a person my age. So... But yeah, but then I'm I'm also oh, well, I wonder if anyone said anything on Twitter. Right. Um, I, I mean, Twitter. I'm not on Facebook very much because that's kind of a little sometimes too intimate and too weird. But like Twitter, <laughs> it's like you're at this just nonstop cocktail party and everyone's talking. You like listening on a conversation. Yeah. You, you say something cute. You walk away. That feels like a conversation. I mean, I don't know. Is that is that a real conversation? It's sort of. I mean, I don't know about solitude, but it sometimes makes me feel less lonely if I'm trying to be inside my own head and, and write for a period of time. Um,
0: yeah, what counts as solitude? I mean, even when you're writing, when you're sitting down to write a, yeah. a review, you're, you're not alone. You're there with the object that you are interacting, you know, the movie or whatever right, you're right. reviewing. When any of us sits in silence, our head is buzzing yeah, <laughs> with yeah. interactions and, and memories. And I guess the Buddhists, you know, argue that you could get past that. I actually went, I did go on a meditation
6: retreat. I'd never done it before, but I went with my family on a yoga and meditation retreat. And it was really interesting. Like, well, with the meditation, I kept thinking, you know, I kept thinking, and I (laughs) was thinking to myself, am I doing this right? You know, I just like, I feel like I'm just sitting here um, (laughs) thinking about what I might have for lunch, and I'm thinking about when my book is going to come out. (laughs) I'm thinking, but this can't be, this can't be.
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like I do agree with Sherry Turkle that in order to interact with other people, you need to somehow get to the place mm-hmm. of knowing thyself, which, you know, for me, when I was like 16, that was writing in my journal yeah. pretty much from that time through my early 20s, yeah. I was just yeah. like filling journals with thoughts, you know, or or through meditation. But somehow, you know, there must be a time where you are disconnected from the steady stream of input and trying to wrestle with, like, what do I really think? Where am I? I, I think that's true, and I don't know. I mean, I,
6: I sometimes am a little skeptical of of a kind of generational bias that that may be in what she was saying right. a little bit, kind of kids these days. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and when I was a kid, it was television. If this is going to rot your mind, and kids are watching television. There were all these alarming studies about how many hours of television right. the American. <laughs> child is is watching. And my parents were fairly strict about it, like when we could right. watch and both my sister and I, like, as a result of that, as soon as we you know, <laughs> moved out and had our own television, we just like you know, we'd watch MTV for like for fifteen minutes <laughs> a, at a time. Um, so there, there's a little bit of that, you know. That and you know, she said, "No, it's different now," and but it's always different now. And go back and look at some of the alarmist literature of the nineteenth century. It's about novels. It's about how right. like young people, especially young men, who should be who should be out, you know working and, and doing productive things and farming and building railroads or whatever are frittering away their time and, and, right. in novels and in dissipating and debilitating reveries. So, uh, you know, there, there's kind of nothing new under the sun in that way, except that, you know, there are, always are new things under the sun. So yeah. I'm, I'm not, I look at my students, I look at my children, I think, okay, yeah, I mean, you do have this other way of interacting with certainly with technology, right? Um, but I'm always just a little hesitant to take the next step and t- you know, toward this. This is a terrible social disaster. Also, because what are, you know, what are uh, we going to do?
0: Yeah, <laughs> I totally hear you. I mean, I, and uh, you know, I mean, on the one hand, what if all the old fogies throughout history were right and right, things actually right. were better, right. you know, like ten thousand right. years ago? Right. But, but, <laughs> but, uh, you know. And I think we do and can make choices, you know, about how yeah. we spend our time. But, yeah, there's a certain extent to which you cannot swim upstream and, like, make all the cell phones go away, you know? Yeah,
6: and you have to, fig- you know, you have to figure out how to, you know, how to defend, I guess, your, your solitude, the integrity of yourself, your relationships with other people. There are always pressures. right? I mean, we're, we're always easily distracted and overstimulated. And so anything that can get us to, to slow down, to take a breath, is probably a good thing.
0: The next section is from a very special episode. This was our first ever live episode, our only live episode so far. It was part of NYC Podfest, and the amazing actress and playwright Sarah Jones, who plays multiple completely different characters, male and female, all different ages. I just wanted to give you two snippets of her. One is her as herself, as Sarah Jones, and the other one is her responding to a clip about World War III, the idea or the possibility of World War III from political pundit Parag Khanna. And she's responding as Nereda, who is completely, as completely different from her as imaginable. She became five other people throughout the course of this show, including a young rapper and a Native American guy and an elderly Jewish woman, And it was, I didn't know who she was going to be when.
7: The reality is even the word sensitivity sort of privileges this illusion that we have a choice. Like being sensitive to another person presupposes that you don't have to really be mindful and alive and aware that they have the same rights and the same basic dignity that you do. Right. So it's almost like that idea of tolerance. You know, I always felt like don't to- if you have to tolerate me, that's like an itchy sweater. Like, don't- you know what I mean? I don't want your tolerance like I'm just here. I'm just floating around like you. Like, can we do something else maybe like love sounds good you know but tolerating each other or like sensitivity sort of implies that there's something that we have to navigate that shouldn't be there but we're kind of trying to walk around it and I think as a country we deserve better and as a world you know
0: yeah I just I think it's because of the way that we talk about these things and the way these conversations go on the internet that you know there's enough fear already to begin with and Mm -hmm. presumably this stuff ought to be intended to break through that fear but it actually just ends up becoming an echo chamber and reinforcing forcing
7: it you we know? can become a whirling dervish of neurotic <laughs> um you know sort of like attempted again sensitivity and yeah. i think we get to learn how to sort of do the work and then trust ourselves there's just something about being able to recognize another person and say i see you my fellow human being not from a place of i see your hyphenated self because i'm you're the other right. and i'm the main thing but from a basic understanding that you know we all have kind of gotten a lot of confusing messages about who, who is human and what humanity is supposed to look like and you know how we're all supposed to interact. There's been a lot of hierarchical versions of things that haven't served everybody for a long time. And now we're doing the work. Many of us are doing the work to you know, kind of shift. And so I say to you, don't worry that you have to be sensitive, because you're doing the work. I think that's the idea, is that I don't want to walk around up-armored and afraid and preemptively defensive, because I'm afraid I'm going to say the wrong thing. I'd much rather sort of do the work and then settle into a a conversation that's filled with humility and say, hey, I don't know. Can you teach me?
0: Right. I think that's great. I, I think that we should leave that part there. And okay. then the, I think I might have been
7: woman splaining a little bit. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no <laughs> I was like oh, h- human splaining. No. I'm just
0: kidding. <laughs> no, it's it's great. Um, I think let's move on to the next part of the show, which is where we watch the surprise clips. So the first one that we have, Parag Khanna, global strategist and author of Connectography, and the title is World War Three or One World War
5: about neither?
0: Yeah, I, I, I think neither would be good. For
7: those of us who saw the first, the second one, and heard plenty about the first. Listen, I tease the younger people, but I, it's a little joke, you'll hear me say it, but I say it to my grandkids. You know, in my day, your laptop was just the place where you put your napkin.
8: <laughs> you like that, sweetheart? <laughs> oh, he's wonderful, okay. Anyway. OK, shall, yes. shall Are you we? ready? Sweetheart? Yes, I'm absolutely. Ready for
9: you. Thank you. All right. There have been about nine major wars that have been predicted in the last 25 years. But interestingly, none of them have escalated to the level of a major regional war or a global conflict that we would describe as a World War III. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that we are not just interdependent in terms of trade. Today we have a large amount of financial integration. We hold a lot of each other's debt. There is also supply chain dispersal. We now manufacture goods in even our own rivals' countries. Walmart, America's largest retailer, makes most of its goods in China. If a war between the U.S. and China were to suddenly break out tomorrow, that would probably mean very bad news for the bottom line of America's largest retailer. So we are much more careful, of course, about stumbling into conflict. I wish that our institutions were to embed this kind of integration and wisdom that prevents a World War III from breaking out. We always have to be afraid that that can happen. And all of those things that we're doing correctly, the supply chain dispersal, the financial integration, the trade interdependence, even the demographic into integration between countries. Let's do a lot more of that. Okay. So.
7: <laughs> hi. Um, my name is Nereida. How are you? It's very nice to meet you. Hi. Um, your name is Jason, right? I your want son to is say your two. name
0: right. It is what? Nereida. Nereida. That's, Nereida.
7: It's close enough. Yes. So, um, <laughs> hi everybody. I'm very excited to be here. Um, first of all, that was very interesting to me because right now I'm I'm doing some. Like I'm very interested in like sustainability issues but also like, you know, the business side and like you know the global economy and everything like that. And here's the thing is that like actually for me, you know, like I am a New Yorker and everything like that, but really I mean, my family I'm Dominican and I'm also half Puerto Rican. Oh, there's a Dominicans here? Get out of here. Oh my God. Okay, uh, después. Okay, entonces, so, so this is what I wanted to say to you. I really don't want to speak Spanish because then I get very confused. I'm a little bit nervous. I'm trying not to be nervous. Whenever I get nervous, I start to talk really fast in both it's languages. Okay. It's, it's all very going to be good. So, um, the point is that I really wanted to say that I really like, you know, the analysis and everything that that guy had. I'm really sorry that you guys couldn't see him. He's a little bit handsome. He could have like, been Dominican. But, um,. <laughs> The thing about it, though, was that like as he was talking and he's talking about all these like, you know, like monetary instruments or whatever and like how all of this stuff is connected and blah, blah, blah. All I kept thinking is like, you know, the one thing that's really going on here is that like people don't realize, especially like, OK, if you if you come from like, you know, like my family, I have some family. They live in El Campo like it's very it's still, you know, it's poor over there, and um, <laughs> you know, like it's very real. So the thing is that like if you're the majority of people, even now, they're like, oh, everybody has laptops and everybody has the, not really not everywhere. You know, yes. like if you really, really travel, it's not really true. They're like, oh, we've lifted everybody out of poverty. No, um, claro que no. So, um, <laughs> you know, what I would really say is that if you want to know what's the biggest World War Three, is the violence of poverty. OK, that's a World War Three that is very real in a lot of people's lives is still today. And I understand that it's not the same thing as like everybody in here feeling unsafe or like we're all dying and blah, blah, blah. But there is the you know, to me, like there's a lot of people that like they would say, yeah, you guys still got a lot of work to do. Like, you know, yeah. it's not just like about pushing a button or something like that. It's the fact that like some people, their children still cannot eat or whatever. Like, that's very real. They don't have like you know sanitation systems or something like that. Their baby is dying of things that you know um, should have been cured by like a two-cent pill or something like that. So to me, there's it's still like a kind of you know that. I mean, I'm not maybe saying it as clearly as that guy did or whatever, but like I'm trying to make the point that like, you know, I'm not satisfied. <laughs> Eso.
0: So, what you're saying, Nereda, is that it's not enough to not start a war. You actually have to do
7: better than that. Exactamente. For it reminds me of that thing that, you know, Chris Rock, he was like, oh, when people are like, oh, I pay child support. You want a medal because, like, you're doing the most basic level of what you're <laughs> supposed to do? <laughs> Como que, you know, you made the child. So don't, like, get all excited. They're like, woohoo, I'm taking care of my child. Yeah, okay. But, right. like, now go do something. Yeah,
0: yeah, you yeah. Know? yeah. And well, anyway. and maybe a step further, right? I mean, I read an article by, um, did you ever see uh, The Wire? You know that show The Wire with David Simon? Yeah, So, so I read an article that he wrote in which he was saying that if you trap people on the outside long enough, it's only a matter of time before they pick up a brick, right? So World War III doesn't necessarily have to come from the inside. Exactly. <laughs> I think it's about
7: your terminology. Like, what do you call World War III? You know what I mean? Like, right. And I mean, I think I would just want to say, like, this one other thing that I think is very important is that, you know, like, people, I'm sorry to say it, like, I mean, maybe it makes me, like, a radical, whatever, like, something. But I just feel like that the military... I'm sorry but you know you can't really prove it to me that all that money that we are spending on that Is actually keeping anybody really safe. Like, I wish all my cousins, everybody that has to go into like the reserves or something like that, if we actually invested some money in this infrastructure of this country, there would still be jobs in the cities here instead of, you know, like all the stuff. Like they said, everything you buy in Walmart is made in China. That means that somebody that doesn't have a job over here and instead they don't have no money. So that when they want to go to college, they have to pay for that with the military, et cetera. I would rather, it's like they used to have the things that said, like, you know, What was it? No bombs instead of bake sales? I don't know. My mother in the (laughs) 70s, she was like one of those protesters, you know, you know about like maybe you don't know. Protesters? No, but like people Puerto Rican. I mean, there was like a whole thing of like the Young Lords. It was like the Black Panthers. It's a lot. But anyway, the point is that,
8: you know, a little bit. So the point
7: is that they were very like, you know, they wanted to really stop focusing so much on the military because they were like, look, it's not making us safer. It's killing us or it's like making people's lives worse. Why don't you take that same money, invest it in education, invest it in neighborhoods, and companies so that we will have jobs and then you will have I don't need to pick up a brick. Right. Because I'm on my way to pick up my kids from school and then like take them to the doctor that they could afford, et cetera. You know what I mean?
0: Good point, good point. Thank you. And and if those systems break down at some point, right? If those global markets, you know, or were, were one of the countries in that chain. Can no longer continue, you know, holding its own end. What its end? Like, what what will happen to those weapons? Where do they go? Right. I what? mean, I
7: think we know. Yeah. Right. Didn't they say? Like, I mean, I don't know. It just it, it gets very frustrating for me because, it's like, oh, we're very concerned about the global security, blah blah blah, and then we like make. Im- embargo 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 yeah. oh it's a spanish word i should know that anyway yeah. the point is that sanction that's the word i was looking for is sanctions that you know we create then the little kids when i was little i remember i was thinking like that little kid that you see suffering in the tv right. in 10 years he's gonna be so mad that his mom died that you killed this that he can't go to school that he doesn't have any place to go he's gonna pick up something and then we're gonna get to call him a terrorist instead of that poor little kid so for me it's just a matter of like you know what do you call warfare this is so. it's not very um, happy. What I'm saying, I um, I don't know if it's supposed to be a happy podcast. It doesn't have to be. No, <gasps> okay.
0: no. I mean, I don't think that was a happy video. Was not it? really. No. Do you have something happier? Maybe. Okay. Let's, shall we see what's next? Yeah.
7: Yes. All right. Okay. Por supuesto que sí. Si. You know what? While we, well, we, is it okay with you? Why? Oh, you you oh, right there. You got means. it no, right I'm, now. No, I'm just. No, gonna, I'm, I'm just gonna because gonna I was very no, curious no, about. no. You it. go ahead. What are you going to say? No, just that. Like you know, do you think that? Um, right now in America, I just think a lot of people they're very confused because they're like, "Oh my God, there's so much to fear, immigrants, blah 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 blah," and they're watching like the news, little like snippets of news. It makes them more stupid. I'm not gonna. I'm. I have some of my friends. The more news they watch, the stupider they sound when they talk to you.
0: Yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's true. Yeah, the news is echoing and fanning the worst of us for sure.
7: I agree. Yeah.
0: One of the most moving moments that ever happened on this show for me was when I was sitting with rapper and poet Kate Tempest, and we were winding up a very long conversation. It had run over an hour, and she just spontaneously produced the following monologue, not in response to a clip, but just, just on her own.
8: You know, I, I went to the coast the other day. I went, I went to like just get to look at the sea and look at the sky. I went to the coast before mm. coming out here. And I was standing on the edge, you know, the edge of the land. And I thought about England. Like I feel very close to to the soil there, of course. It's where I'm from. And I realised that, you know, it's just this this piece of land, right? This just sounds so ridiculous, but this is what I thought. And on top of this piece of land, there are just... It's just populated by this kind of noise, which humanity just... We've kind of built these cities and (laughs) blah, blah, blah. And we just tell these stories to each other about who we are and what we do. And we tell this story about wealth and money and how we make exchange for goods and services and we tell stories about schooling and education and healthcare, it's, it's just stories. And actually I stood there and I watched the water come in and go out on the land and I was like, okay, so this is real. And everything, the way that we structure ourselves, our power structures, our structures within our families, the way that we fall in love, it's just stories that we tell, it's just narrative, right? And I understand this because I'm a teller of stories, I understand how important they are, I'm in love with stories, of course. And I started to think, OK, well, if you want to make a change, you just need to change the narrative. You just need to change the dominant cultural narrative. And you just need to be open to hearing stories, the stories of the people that you're not listening to. Because these stories are being told. It's, they're all over the land. And if we could just learn, you know, that, the first thing we need to do is actually hear each other. And the next thing we need to do is just change the fucking narrative, you know?
0: And that's it for this week's episode of Think Again, part two of our mixtapes of greatest hits thus far. Thank you so much for being with us uh, on this journey, whether you've just joined us or whether you've been with us all along. Uh, And if you have a minute to rate or review our show on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or whatever pod thing you listen on, that would be hugely helpful to us. And hope to see you next week.